Welcome back to Crime Pros. A very special episode today because I have been able recently to look at where all of our listeners are in the world. And so I was really excited. I had this idea. I thought, oh, let's find the city with the most listeners and we'll do an episode there. So I set up this whole episode and all of this good stuff. And then last week, after I had set this up, the city with the most listeners changed. So this isn't the city with the most listeners anymore, but it was for a hot minute. So today's episode is all about Springfield, Illinois, good old cornfields. And so in order um, to talk about a crime that happened in Springfield, I have a guest who is from Springfield and you'll never guess who it is. It's my dad. Hi, dad. Hey, Jace. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for doing this. So this is Jack Lucas, who has lived in Springfield for five years now, right? Yes, that's that's correct. Great. And so I never lived in Springfield, but we spent a lot of time there. Tell the people about Springfield, Illinois. Springfield is the capital uh, of our state. And of course, everyone knows Springfield because Abraham Lincoln had his law offices here, uh, calls it home. This is the, the home of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln. And it is literally in the middle of cornfields, as you said. Uh, population is somewhere around 116, 117,000 people, lots of bedroom communities outlying, and they're all farm communities. So rural uh, America, farm America, uh, but with with some of the amenities of life because of the fact that it is the state capital and uh, just it's a good place to live. Yeah, it's a very strange town because I always say like there's like clusters of town in the town. So there's like one little cluster with like a gas station and a Walmart and then you have to drive through a cornfield to get to another little cluster with a couple restaurants and then you drive through another cornfield to get it's a very like strange setup I feel like. But that really um, plays into the ruralness of today's crime. So today we are going to be talking about the Lori Hayes murder. So on August 1st, 1999, the people of Springfield, it's like morning time and they're just going about their day and people are enjoying a little movie in an AMC theater in town. And a few just passers-by hear a baby crying. And so they start to look around for it. Where could this baby be? And pretty quickly, these civilians find a baby in a parked white Jeep. Now the doors are unlocked. It's easy to get into. Um, but it's a very hot day. Uh, one source said it was over 92 degrees that day. And so all of these you know, passers-by are like, we have to save this baby. So with the doors being unlocked, people get into the car, they rescue the baby, they call the police. And and the police show up and they're thinking, oh, you know, maybe there's a mom or a dad nearby in a business. And, um, you know, they went to get some gas or went to the store or even to a movie and forgot the baby, which is still a crime. But, you know, it's not like someone had malicious intent. So they start searching, but pretty quickly they realize something more sinister may be going on when they find blood in the car. Now, there's blood inside the vehicle and on the back bumper. And on that same bumper, there's a single gunshot. 
So the police are immediately very worried. They also find the contents of a woman's purse dumped out inside the car and think, oh, this might have been a robbery gone wrong. But in the car, they find a wallet with money. And so if there's money in a wallet, usually that means that this was not a robbery or else someone would have taken taken the valuables. But because there's a wallet and because every car is registered, they pretty quickly figure out that this car belongs to the Hayes family. So while they try to figure out where the Hayes family is, they begin canvassing the shopping area, desperate to find the owner. And this child, who's about 18 months old, is handed over to Child Protective Services and a missing person investigation begins when they cannot find either of the Hayes parents who own this vehicle. Now there are 12 nearby surveillance cameras that cover the entire parking lot of the shopping center. And on August 1st, 1999, 11 of those 12 cameras are working. But can you guess which one isn't working? Always the one that you need. The one that you need. And it's the one that's pointed at the Jeep. So they have no video evidence, nothing at all. They see the car coming into the parking lot on surveillance footage but that's about it. So they run the plates, confirm that it belongs to the Hayes family, and they're able to find out pretty quickly that they live in Auburn. Now, you know Auburn pretty well, don't you? Yes, uh, we actually live in the Auburn School District. Um, our, our oldest daughter graduated from Auburn High School, and we currently have a freshman at Auburn High School, and it's six, six miles from our house. So uh, yes, nice, wonderful rural community good people in Auburn, very tight-knit, close community. We actually have a lot of listeners also in Auburn, which is great because I'm sure that they're your friends, but I don't know anyone in Auburn. Um, So they find out that the car belongs to Brad and Lori Hayes, who live in Auburn. So the police drive out to Auburn about 15 minutes from where the car was found um, in the parkway area of Springfield um, and they conduct a welfare check at the home but again there's nobody there so the police decide they're going to case the place and just wait it out and see what happens and luckily not too long after just a couple of hours later Brad the father of the discovered child shows up now Brad says he's coming home from a softball game but that before the softball game, he was on a trip for several days in Denver. So he hasn't seen his wife in several days. And the police tell Brad that his daughter, Alexis, has been found in a car, but that no one has been able to find Lori. And I don't know, I don't remember 99. Like I was three, not even three at this point. Was this pre-cell phone? Cell phones were a thing at the time, but not many people had them. Uh, they were big and bulky and, and staticky, and uh, they were kind of a luxury. And, and folks who who were a little more affluent had cell phones, but it was not uh, it was not a common thing. We did not have any cell phones in 1999. So Lloyd probably didn't have a cell phone. They could just call to try and find her. And also, you know the Springfield. Every time I'm there, and even when I just call you, signal there is sketchy today. So I can't imagine what it was like in '99. So it's pretty quickly determined that Lori is missing, and the the case is turned into a missing persons case, searching for Lori Hayes. 
Now, please contact Lori's family, who are from Kentucky, and they also make their way to Springfield. And it's revealed that earlier, uh, or the day before, so 30 days, how many days are there in July? 31. On the 31st of July, uh, Lori's mom had come to visit Springfield from Kentucky. Anytime that Brad was gone and, and the baby had to go to a doctor's appointment or anything like that, her family would come to visit her because Lori was a young mother. She had given birth at just 24 years old, which is how old I am. And I am not ready to have a child. And so she's this young mother. Her mom had come up the day before and then had left that same day, August 1st, early in the morning. And when she left, Lori told her that she was also leaving the house to go shoe shopping in Springfield. And conveniently, there were some shoe stores in the shopping center that Lori's car was found in. So the police go to these shoe stores and they start to interview employees and customers who may have visited those days and no one remembers seeing Lori Hayes. So they're thinking now that she may have never even made it into the shoe stores. They're putting together their timeline. Early on the morning of the 1st, Lori's mom left and we know that Lori was headed that morning to the shoe store. We know she made it to the shopping center that has the shoe stores, but no one in the shoe stores ever saw her and it was still morning when passersby found her baby so there's a pretty small window of just a couple of hours that something may have gone wrong or glory may have gone missing a search of the area continues and it extends into all of sangamon county which is where springfield is um, and in these rural areas a lot of the times the county sheriffs take over these investigation because there's not a lot of police officers in these tiny towns um, in these counties. So there's a countywide search, but there are how many, if you had to guess, how many acres of fields do you think there are in Sangamon oh. County? I, I have no, no idea, but I would say hundred, hundreds of thousands of acres of corn fields, corn and soybean fields in the county. And in August, early August, the corn is already what, like, maybe three feet high, maybe a little shorter. Yeah, it start, it's starting to grow at that point. It's about halfway through its life cycle. So yeah, at least three feet. So they've got all of these hundreds of thousands of acres to search. And the corn is at, at like half of a person or more than half of a person tall. So it's, it's a difficult search. And there's just absolutely no way that every field can be searched completely quickly and easily. But after less than a day of searching, the police efforts pay off when a body is found. Sheriff's Deputy Robert Steele is driving through Auburn where Lori lives when he sees something out in a field. It's a few feet off of the road, he says, and it's some kind of figure, a dark figure, out in the corn. So he pulls over his patrol car, gets out, walks into the field, about 60 to 70 feet into the field, and sees that it's a woman's body. Obviously, he knows he's a part of this search. The body matches Lori's description, and the police are pretty quickly able to identify that this is the body of Lori Hayes. Now, I think this would be really hard to see a body 70 feet into a cornfield. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, I can't imagine walking up on that scene uh, with with the circumstances. I'm sure they were probably looking for a body, but hoping to find um, Lori alive. But uh, I would imagine that probably there would be some psychological scarring uh, from that. That's uh, even though Illo- uh, Springfield is is a decent sized community. Um, there's not a lot of homicides in this area, and there certainly were probably even less going on in 1999. So I'm sure this was probably a first for this deputy, for sure. I also just think it's hard to even imagine how he saw the body. Like, you're just driving down a road. Like, you know those back roads. People kind of go kind of (laughs) fast. And there's a body. What is 70? I'm trying to think, like, how I can compare 70 feet. What is that, like 20 yards? More than 20 yards, right? Into three feet of corn, and he just happens to notice a body on the ground. That's like pretty lucky. Yeah, it probably is very lucky, to be honest. Uh, with corn, um, it's, it's planted pretty tightly together. Uh, the lighting would probably have had to have been just right um, for him to have seen this. Uh, probably some stalks would have been broken, bent from the body being placed in the field. And so that might have enhanced his line of sight at that point. Uh, But still, yes, probably a very lucky happenstance that that he spotted the body. That's a good point about the bent ears of corn. I didn't even think this is why we got to get the experts in. Um, So the police go to work processing this scene and Lori's cause of death is easily determined to be a gunshot wound to the back of her head. She doesn't appear to have been robbed because we know that was something they were considering, but her wedding ring is still on her hand. And that's one of the first things that people are usually robbed of when they're murdered in a robbery. So with that and her her wallet being found in the car with money in it, they're pretty confident that robbery was not a motive. Officers do note that there does not appear to be any sign of struggle in the field. You know, there's just one line where it looks like her body may have been dragged. So they're assuming that she was already dead when she was brought there. And an autopsy reveals that there's also semen found on the body. So a new motive now is under assumption when people think that she may have been sexually assaulted. The missing person search turns into a homicide case and police appeal to the public and receive dozens of tips within the first day. So we're now less than 24 hours after Lori was reported missing, less than 30 hours after her mother saw her the day before, and they already have dozens of tips to look into. Now, most promising of all of these tips is a witness who claims that he saw a man driving a white Jeep matching Lori's description into the parking lot where it was found. So the police think that's interesting because we had initially assumed that Lori had driven her Jeep into that parking lot and and gone missing there somehow. But now this witness is saying there was a man driving it and we know the security footage wasn't great that day. So there's actually no way for them to go back and, and check. But with this tip, they start to think, could this man have possibly been Lori's husband, Brad? We know that one in five homicides is committed by a romantic partner. And with 
Brad's story of having been at a softball game, the police do find it slightly suspicious that he never went home after his trip from Denver, that he just went straight to play softball and then he was conveniently gone for a couple of hours. And they're thinking, you know, you haven't seen your wife in a few days, you have an 18 month old baby at home. This is just a little bit suspicious for them. So before they confront Brad, they interview friends, family, and colleagues who report that there was a troubled marriage with a lot of fighting. And the police decide that this is good enough cause to bring Brad in for interrogation. And their interrogation comes out inconclusive, but I did hear one detective say that he found Brad to be very evasive. He didn't want to answer questions. He did not want to submit DNA. He did not want to talk about Lori's disappearance. And I talked about on this show before how a lot of the times police will say, you know, this isn't how we expected someone to react to finding out that their significant other died, or this isn't how you would expect someone to react when they're under investigation for harming someone that they know. But we also know that everyone responds differently in those situations. And I can't even imagine how I would respond. Now, I imagine um, that he realized when they brought him in to question him that probably they were suspecting him. And uh, a lot of people's reaction at that point is uh, to become inwardly very defensive um, and, and, and to shut down. And that may very well have been what was going on in, in his life. Yeah. So as the police are looking into Brad Hayes, some of the detectives on the case also realized that there are maybe some connections to a case that they had handled years earlier. Because you see, a little less than 10 years before this case, there was another murder. A woman named Melissa Kuntz, who was 18 years old, was discovered, found dead in a cornfield just a few miles from where Lori's body was found. She had also been sexually assaulted and murdered. And it was later discovered that she was abducted from a shopping center just five miles from where Lori had been abducted. So the police think, could we be dealing with some kind of serial killer in our rural community? But the DA reminds them that two people were already charged for this murder, convicted, and are in prison. So this ends up being a dead end. Meantime, the police are processing Lori's, uh, the rape kit that they performed on Lori's body. And from this, they collect DNA. And the DNA and the semen found on Lori's body does not match the DNA that they collected from her husband, Brad. So Brad is ruled out as a suspect and the police, I mean, I watched um, a video interview of one of the detectives and he just says like, how awful that we put him through this when actually he wasn't involved at all. His daughter was now with Child Protective Services. His wife had been killed and we put all this suspicion on him. So if there's any light in this entire story, it's that Brad was reunited with his daughter, Alexis, and with Lori's family. At the same time, analysis of the DNA from the rape kit generates a match to DNA that they already have in their system. See, not too long before, a Springfield realtor had been raped while she was showing a house. It was a pretty big case at the time, and the DNA from her rape kit 
match the DNA from Lori Hayes' rape kit. So we know for a fact that these two acts were committed by the same man. Now, luckily, this realtor had escaped when she caused a scene in the house, like as the um, the perpetrator was leaving the house and she was supposed to be going with him. She somehow managed to get behind him and close the door and then made this big scene and, you know, neighbors started to notice and um, she was being really loud. And so the man fled. Um, so she survived, luckily, and the police are able to go talk to her. And this opens so many new possibilities because now they can take all of the clues from the Lori Hayes case, with all of the clues from this realtor's case, and that's actually quite a wealth of evidence. So the cases are merged with the knowledge that the crimes were committed by the same perpetrator. And there's also a second real estate agent who comes out and says that a man also tried to rape her during a showing, but that he escaped. And that that timeline of when she showed a house and when this man tried to rape her matched closely with the timeline of the real estate agent who was raped. So we have two real estate agents, one with attempted rape, one who was sexually assaulted, and someone who was murdered. And we're assuming all three of these were committed by the same person based on matching DNA for the first realtor and the murder, and based on matching description from the first and second realtor. So all of these cases are merged all of the detectives on all of them are now working together. So this first realtor, she gives a description of the face that she saw because she was just showing a house and it was a normal showing at first. And the police are able to release a sketch to the public. Both realtors give separate statements with chillingly similar descriptions of the rapist. And the police note that he seems like he knows what he's doing. He knows to frisk them and search them for weapons. He knows, in fact, one of the realtors said that she had uh, pepper spray, I think, with her. And he like knew to look for that first thing and take it from her. He also seemed to be uh, professionally trained, maybe, in how to handle people who were trying to escape from him. He knew to take away phones so that they couldn't communicate. And investigators realized they may be looking at an inside job and they have to start looking into the law enforcement community. And Springfield, as much as it's a rural place, it has a decent amount of law enforcement in the area. Not that there's a lot of police to work on homicide investigations there, but there's all, because it's the state capital, you have the state police, the National Guard, all of the security for the elected officials. Like there are quite a few people in this area who are trained in law enforcement, right? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, with 100,000 people in the city alone, then you talk about the, the county population, uh, the every small community has at least one or more officers and state police headquarters are here. You are talking about a significant number uh, of, of individuals at that point. And so um, the suspect list at that point would be quite extensive. Yeah. So they have all of these police officers that they are starting to look into, but one really stands out, Sheriff's Deputy Robert Steele, the man who found Lori Hayes' body. From day one, investigators say that they were suspicious of how Steele claims to have found the body in the cornfield. They say that from 60 to 70 feet, people who showed up on the scene that day could not see the body. So they're, they're bewildered by the fact that 
driving down the road, he noticed the body. And automatically, the police form a theory that maybe Steele planted the body there, and that's how he knew where to find it. But while some of the investigators look into Deputy Robert Steele, another suspect comes up. His name's Marcus White. He um, is brought to their attention by another local police officer uh, who it asks to meet with the detectives because she saw the sketch that was released to the public um, and she recently arrested Marcus White who matched the sketch. And what did she arrest him for? Rape. Marcus White was arrested just a few weeks prior to Lori Hayes' body being found in a sexual assault case. And the police decide to take a photo of Mr. White to the realtor who helped them to create the sketch. And it's placed in a lineup of photos and she picks out Marcus White. Now, since White is already in jail for a different sexual assault case, it's easy to question him and get a DNA sample. The DNA is tested and he's ruled out. It's not a match. The realtor had mistakenly identified him with the sketch um, and, and the police are back at square one. Now, elsewhere in Springfield at the same time, there's a local vigilante who decides to take the case into her own hands. This is a woman who works for a security-based Springfield company, and she connects the sketch to one of her co-workers. His name is Dale Latch. And she decides she wants to handle the case herself. So she finds the name of the realtor who was raped and gets in touch with her through mutual friends that she discovers they have. And she shows the picture of Dale Lash to this this uh, real estate agent um, and asks, was this the man who attacked you? And the real estate agent gives her a positive ID. This must have been him. But there's a problem with this. You see, when police give image lineups to someone, they show multiple images because they want to avoid misidentification or implying guilt. And there's a lot of psychology that goes with, with this, that when someone has been traumatically assaulted like this and is shown a picture of someone that the police say, maybe this person did it, they want to assume that the police have found the, the perpetrator because they want justice. But by showing just one image to the real estate agent, the security worker risks leading the witness into false belief Nevertheless, though, the realtor does ID Dale Lash as the perpetrator of her rape, and so the security worker decides she's still going to bring Lash to the police's attention. Now, the police quickly see a resemblance between Dale Lash and Marcus White. So they think, oh, it's, it's easy that if, you know, one of these men committed the crime, the real estate agent could have easily, like, mistaken one for the other. And they also note that Dale Lash has a background working in security. And remember, they had assumed that this rapist may have worked in law enforcement. So security is a very similar field. Officers are able to identify an ex-girlfriend of Lash and decide to go question her. 
And she reveals that Dale Lash is abusive, controlling, and hypersexual with harsh fantasies. And these are all characteristics of a sexual predator and sometimes even a serial killer. Now, around the same time, the real estate agent, the first one, the, the one who had been raped and has been helping the police in this investigation, she finds an old voicemail. It is the message of the man who attacked her setting up his appointment to see a house. And so she turns this over to police and police decide they're going to take this to a man named Danny Lash, Dale's brother. And Danny says the man on this tape is Dale Lash. So with this new evidence, police decide it's time to interview Dale Lash. They discover that his home is just two miles from where Lori Hayes' body was found in Auburn, and he's brought in for questioning. And there, he admits to knowing the real estate agent. He says that they even had a consensual sexual relationship, but that he never raped her and never attacked her. However, regardless of consent, if you admit to having sex with a rape victim, you can be subjected to a search warrant. And so the police are able to, to collect his DNA um, with or without his consent. And when the police are able to test the DNA of Dale Lash, it matches the DNA they found on Lori Hayes and on the real estate agent. And when they reveal this, to Mr. Lash, he gives a passive admission to the murder. Now, shortly after, testing reveals that, that Dale, um, his DNA does match, is able to be double, triple checked and confirmed, and he is arrested for both crimes. Dale Lash never gives a full confession to the rape, but the police have a theory. They think that Dale Lash is a sexual predator whose MO must have been setting up appointments with real estate agents and attacking them during their tours of these empty homes. Because of his security training, he was easy, or it was easy for him to overcome them. But when these started to draw attention, you know, he had two people who got away from him. He had neighbors who were starting to notice when, when the real estate agents made scenes in the homes he decided he must need to change his modus operandi. So the theory is that when he saw Lori vulnerable and alone in the shopping center, he made a, a quick decision to force his way into her vehicle and force her to drive into the countryside where he raped her and then killed her with a single gunshot to the back of her head that single gunshot they think is also the bullet that hit her bumper. And then he returned her Jeep to the, the shopping center parking lot to clear suspicions and to make sure that the baby was found. So this is the police's working theory. They're able to clear their last other suspect, Deputy Steele, of any suspicion. And instead of now suspecting him of, you know, wrongdoing, they're actually praising how amazing it was that he found Lori Hayes' body in so much corn. Dale Lash is convicted of both the realtor's rape and of Lori Hayes' murder. He's sentenced to death, but his sentence is commuted when the state of Illinois 
puts a moratorium on the death penalty, and today he's rotting in prison where he'll remain for the rest of his life. And that is the story of Lori Hayes and Dale Flash. What do you think? Jace, wasn't he accused of another rape uh, in 1995? Did you see if um, if he was convicted of that uh, charge as well, or was it just the two? I didn't see that, but I was just researching specifically the Lori Hayes case, so I may have missed it. And there was that other realtor who said that like there was that second realtor who said that she was attacked by the same person that attacked the first one. So it may have been tied to that. It's it's an interesting case. And it's not one that I had heard of. Um, we didn't move up here until 2017. And obviously this happened a number of years ago. But um, in looking into this case, a lot of the locations became um, very real to me as I've, I've been to all of those. Her body was found outside of Chatham, which is a, a local community, and she's from Auburn, uh, who were closely tied to. And we shop in the Parkway shopping area where she was abducted. And, um, you know, he lived in Loami, which is not that far from where we go to church. And so uh, just uh, some some very direct connections for me and that really drew me into the case and uh, was very intriguing and uh, very interesting how how the case all came together uh, especially with with this um, this private citizen being the one who kind of kind of cracked the whole thing wide open I know and how lucky that she didn't mess it up when she just went straight to the uh, the real estate agent um, because if it did, if they weren't able to test DNA and it came down to, you know, identification, like from a person, they wouldn't have been able to use her, like her wit as a witness because she had been led to believe already. But luckily she was led to believe the right thing and they had the DNA to test too. So how, oh, no, you're, go ahead. You're, you're absolutely correct. And, and not only that, but she'd already made one bad identification. One false and ID. so there's, there's already some question there. I know that that was something that also worried me because I well obviously there's DNA here so like I got him but I always worry about like false conviction and I don't ever cover cases on this show unless either someone admitted to it or if there is like question about could this have been like a false conviction. I always make sure that that's covered. Um, so like, that's something that worried me when she had already made a false ID until I read that the police also saw the resemblance between the two men. Um, and of course, like, you know, she wants to, to probably clear from her mind any of those memories. And, and so it makes sense that she just saw someone who looked kind of like him and picked them. How do you think this will or will it change how you see Springfield? I, d I don't know that it will um, will change how I see Springfield. Uh, unfortunately, these kind of things can and do occur in all kinds of locations. And, uh, you know, the community that we lived in prior to moving up here in Mount Vernon, um, we, we had um, homicides. We had rapes, we, you know, and it was a much smaller community. And so I don't know. Um, that it will change that much. I grew up in rural, rural Southern Illinois, uh, and and one of uh, one of my cousins' mothers um, was was raped and murdered um, in a community of two hundred, and, and so um, 
you know, I, I don't know that it will change how I, I view Springfield, um, though having a wife and a daughter still in the community, I don't know, it might cause me to be a little more vigilant oh, no. at, at what's going on. So, Luckily, I think it's a pretty safe place, but it, it is. Well, this has been interesting and sorry to our listeners in the actual town that has the most listens now, which is Swansea, Illinois, just a few hours away from Springfield. We know Swansea. I know. I was like, I was like, I only know one family in Swansea, so (laughs) I don't know. Okay. Um, And it's not that big of a town either. But anyway, so sorry to you guys that you didn't get the number one, um, the number one spot when I was planning this, but shout out. Uh, So yeah, so thank you, Dad, for joining us for today's episode of Crime Pros. Do you have any final thoughts before we go? Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, This has been a lot of fun. I've I've enjoyed it and uh, have enjoyed listening uh, to the other other podcasts and episodes and uh, has actually launched me into uh, listening to a broader range so uh, so thanks for letting me be a part of it well thank you and thank you to everyone who listened to today's episode we hope you'll keep on listening for the rest of our first season of crime pros with our season finale coming up alongside our halloween special on october 18th so keep on listening through october 18th Thank you for listening to Crime Pros. Make sure to download this episode and subscribe to the show. If you like our true crime stories, head over to Apple Podcasts and let us know with a five-star review. Crime Pros is hosted by Jace Lucas and is a production of Amp Media. This week's guest was Jack Lucas. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Amp Media Official. We'll see you next week for a new true crime story with a new true crime pro.